The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. That also includes publishing books. And the most recent book, I think it's still the most recent book, (laughs) that uh, Second Mission has published is The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. This gripping book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. For that book, for other books, and for all the lines of effort the Second Mission has going on, go ahead and visit them at secondmissionfoundation.org. That is Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org second mission foundation dot org and i thank second mission for their sponsorship of this episode my guests today were tom and jen satterley um tom has had an incredibly decorated career over 25 years in the army his last 20 years were with delta where he was part of some of the most iconic known missions uh that Delta had um, in recent memory. He was part of the Battle of Mogadishu. Uh, I believe he was actually portrayed in the movie. I think there's he's actually a character in the movie, if I remember right. And, um, and then he was also part of the mission that resulted in the capture of Saddam Hussein. And I'm sure a bunch of other ones that we don't even know about. But those are the two um, that publicly we know of and, um, and certainly stand out in the public consciousness. That is just the beginning of his story, really. Um, In 2014, he nearly killed himself. He had gone through three marriages and um, obviously had a host of physical, psychological, mental issues that he was working through. And um, so many things turned around because of his now fourth marriage to Jen Satterley, who uh, was the director of a film and photography company. Um, that was embedded and doing training with special operations troops. And I won't give you guys too many spoilers about how they met. You'll hear it in the episode and they talk about it in their books. So if you're inclined to buy their books, um, you can read all about it in detail there. But, um, but Jen, you know, has become a uh, certified health coach and together they started uh, all secure foundation, which serves retired veterans in, many ways and, and and i should say also active troops as well but they have uh several lines of effort probably the two most prominent ones are their special operations warrior couples workshop retreats um, which they'll talk about in the episode and then they have a six-week mind and body reset that they offer on their website at allsecurefoundation.org that you can actually go to and get for free and uh, they'll walk you through how to fast and how to cleanse and all this stuff. So everything for mind, body, and spirit um, that they provide 
and I just had a great time talking with them. Uh, I had so many questions, not for myself. My marriage is perfect. Thanks for asking. Um, but you know, for friends, uh, it was, I was really glad to be able to talk with them and get their perspective, see how they've been able to reconcile two very different lives into, um, a very strong business venture together, as well as being able to leverage all that experience and help others. Uh, it was just a thrill to be able to talk to them. I can't wait to have them back on to talk even more because I feel like there were my list of questions and subjects that we could talk about kept going on and on. And I was like, I'm going to hijack their entire day if I don't let them go soon. So uh, we'll get them back on. But this is a, uh, a good first dose of um, what Tom and Jen are up to and an awful lot of insight and uh, and perspective to dive into. So I'm thrilled they were able to come on. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Tom and Jen Satterley's Profile in Havoc. All right, Tom and Jen Satterley, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Well, this is very cool for me, and I know this has been a long time coming. Um, I know we were going back and forth for a while, a couple months ago, and I was super excited that the idea was even being floated. So can I start with a couple of alibis? Um, You guys are sort of a guinea pig for me on a new thing I'm trying to do, which is to not read the book that you've read, that you've written because I don't want to have all the answers right off the bat. And I realized I'd read it and go, yeah, well, everybody knows this. Okay, cool. Cause I know it. everybody else should know it. And then I wouldn't ask very obvious questions that everybody listening is like, did what, what happened between like 1980 and 1990, you know, like that kind of thing. So, uh, so I'm going to, I did look at the book cause I couldn't help, but look at bits and pieces, but I will be as ignorant as I possibly can. And hopefully we cover a ton of, of ground that way. Um, but I enjoyed the book for the parts I read. I enjoyed the intro. That was, that was pretty cool. Hey, pictures in there. So I, I love right. your, I love your approach, by the way, that's really well, smart. We're starting our podcast and I feel like I have to read everybody's book before I have them on. And honestly, I'm a slow reader. So <laughs> I don't like your approach. You want to know. So you'll ask better questions. Right. Instead. Exactly. People say things to me and I'm like, that's in there. I forgot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wrote that that's, that's, that's what it was you know i i forget things so it's good well, to be more inquisitive yeah no yeah i mean yes. i because I, I like coming in being like a hyper fan and like going hey let me do this but then i notice like all my questions go right to very you know uh surgical issues and very very granular issues and i don't like take the thirty thousand foot view that sometimes kind of helps people know who the hell i'm talking to and what we're talking about and why we're talking about it and all that um so let me, I, I know the answer to this and I'll pretend I don't, um, but why don't we just start with how you two guys met, since that's obviously a big part of what we're talking about today. Yeah, gosh, we met. What and a stellar day. <laughs> <laughs> I was at my best. Yeah, you were, you were at a great point in your life. Honestly, I wasn't too far behind you, really. We kind of met at a time where both of our lives were unraveling. Um, through divorces. Um, and, you know, we met while, I, while we were filming. So Tom was working for a company that was doing some things kind of in the entertainment industry. You were so thrilled to be there. Um, pleasant as well. Like, I think 
you know, after we had filmed, I was hired to film a trailer. Um, so I worked in commercial photography, film, um, and photography. So I was hired out to be a director for this kind of short film project. But what really intrigued me was they started talking about RMTs, realistic military training exercises. And one was happening at the exact same time that we were filming this trailer. And I found myself really drawn to what are those SEALs doing over there? What's, you know, what's happening? And just kind of excited by the idea that I could go on one of these things. I asked. I forgot we did that. We were filming. Yeah. Working at the same time. time. And I've totally forgot about that. Because Teddy Lanier was. We can't film now. We have to go over and do some stuff. We'll be back to film later. And she's like, what's going on over here? You know? (laughs) Okay. So yeah, sorry. So you're saying, so you're looking at these seals over there doing the RMTs. And I asked the owner of the company, I said, is there ever an opportunity for a civilian to go on one of these? And he said, yeah, as a role player, you know, you could be a role player. And I said, what if I came down as a filmmaker? And they're like, well, special operations, you know, they have combat camera and and filming doesn't go together, but they don't really go together. And you know, at that time I was working in sports marketing as well, um, primarily with Ironman, but had done some work with the St. Louis Cardinals. And I said, listen, they record everything, every move, every play, every twitch. And then they go in the basement in this little squirrel room and they review every single play, every single move. Why don't you guys do that in special operations? Why don't you bring that kind of idea of recording and then going back and seeing where you messed up, where you did well. Although the doing well part for three years, I don't think I heard only the mess up parts. <laughs> that's all we focused on anyway, right? What right. we did wrong. So, so that's how we met. It's perfect to link up in a world where she showed us everything we were doing wrong. You know? <laughs> Yay. I was popular. <laughs> you, you did of course, let them know that the St. Louis Cardinals are the greatest baseball team of all time. So that was pretty good. She's let know, me know that. Bonafides. Yes. Are you from St. Louis, Jen? I am from St. Louis and did some work with the Cardinals. Lucky enough to spend four years with Pujols' foundation. um, Do some work in the Dominican and his relief and medical aid as well. So, and and now uh, we just spent Tom's birthday two weeks ago with Tony Larusa for dinner. He he's become a big supporter of our organization and as a local kind of guy when we first met him i'm like you don't understand this is tony la russa from 90s iconic cardinals baseball but but you need that that's like helpful naivete though right because you don't want to be gobsmacked walk i saw you guys were rubbing shoulders with all these like folks like that you're getting to meet now through the foundation celebrity types and all that it's nice when you don't know who they are right that kind of makes life a little easier john saley oftentimes i'm like hello yes nice to see you (laughs) Yes. Like we, like, who is that? We'll like, go oh, to that's... these sporting events and neither of us know anyone. John Sealy walked up. He's number two winningest baseball coach in the world. I'm right. like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Do, do you ever find yourself like talking to the wrong person? It's like, oh, wait, I was talking to like yes. a chauffeur. I'm not, I didn't realize he was the celebrity I was supposed to be talking well, to. Yeah, we've made some moments, but I think that just endears us more. <laughs> John Sealy walks up. And obviously he's seven feet tall. I know he's a basketball player of some kind, but like, obviously everyone in the room is freaking out over him. He comes up to us and he's like, Oh, Hey, Tony told me I should come over and say hi. I was like, he's talking. It's so nice to meet another tennis player. Like, (laughs) you know, just lead with the joke. And he's like, ha ha. Okay, great. And later I'm like, who is that? 
The next day on stage, he's dogging us both out about, I studied who they were and I went up and messed with them and they didn't even know who I was. And they, you know, they were playing this game. And I'm like, that's exactly what we were doing. Yeah, that's who was. And he was laughing the whole time going, I thought I had to mess with him. So it's, it's interesting meeting those people when they're, when they're great and nice and open, you know, yeah. um, and you learn so much. You do. Well, really that we're all the same kind yeah, of we're all the same. well that's that's great that they go there i i know we've you know my nonprofit is a arts organization for veterans and um it's been an interesting learning curve with certain celebrity types the amount of gatekeepers the amount of sometimes walls that come up um and it's cool if you get past that and you can get right to the heart and soul of a person um that's a great feeling and that's cool um but yeah certainly i've seen it go the other way as well where you're like how do I get over this wall exactly? What's the gate code to get in? And yeah, it, it can get annoying, but that's I cool. Found it, I found it relatively simple to get in. Very easy to get kicked out. <laughs> right? You, I've seen people come in and start begging, asking, you know, I like we're best friends. Oh yeah. We're pretty humble. I am anyway, yeah, you know, absolutely. anybody and keep to ourselves and we don't, you know, we get these phone numbers and we don't use them. You know, right. They, right. You know, we get, get baseball players phone numbers i'm like i promise not to stalk you you text him once i'm like oh you know and then that's it but so we we, we don't we don't do that you kind of know the people who have heart too like when you mm. meet them and like liam hendrix from yeah. the white Sox. we you know honestly i'm like that is one of the nicest most humble guys oh, that's cool you know and yeah. he was he was so incredibly like gracious to tom and just very appreciative he he was like starstruck, you know, it was kind of like the opposite. Oh, that's cool. I know Tom that helps saying that yeah. right now. But, yeah. you know, he's like, oh, I grew up with Black Hawk Down and, you know, I, I love that movie. And it's, you know, been a real impact in my life. So, you know, I think it's really cool to see professionals, you yeah. know, some of the best professionals, him in baseball, Tom and, you know, the unit get together and have so many of the same insecurities, so many of the same, you know, questions about masculinity and, and all of these things where, you know, some of these guys have trauma from childhood, a lot of it, mm. um, and bad trauma, um, that they've built their lives out of that as well. So, I mean, it just kind of goes to show our saying of trauma comes from anywhere, from any source, and it can affect anyone at any point in their time in their life. Yeah. Tom, how does that make you feel to suddenly in certain circles, you know, be a celebrity and to have been a part of so many iconic things that men especially look up to is it weird now you're coming out of it and you you're a face and a name that could be associated with that is it disorienting or are you used to it now all of those things it's awkward weird it's it's embarrassing <laughs> um I, I i directly go to minimizing it which i tell people not to do i directly and immediately start that oh it's just my job or or, or i don't say anything because it's just I mean, what do you say? But thank right. you. <laughs> I don't know what to say with that. It's not, right. I'm not comfortable in it because I've never previously spoken about those things and literally lied about doing them. And, and now when you speak openly about it, it's um, people are like, Oh my God, you were in black Hawk down. They start talking. Oh, you were in the capture Saddam Hussein. Oh my God. And it's like, yeah. really, it was a moment in time that's gone. It was, you know, it was like driving your car through the car wash for me at the time. Right. Another right. thing that you did, you know, um, so I don't feel that they're as important as people make them out to be. So it's difficult to act excited and, and, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. I, I, I get weird. <laughs> I get instantly yeah. Yeah. Look and act weird when they start saying things that I'm uncomfortable with. Well, that's what they say, right? That you wouldn't wish fame on your worst enemy, that it's just, yeah. it's just brutal. And, um, 
I mean, I guess, fortunately, you're not in Tom Cruise territory where you have to hide in a hotel room and can't walk out on the street. But oh, certainly God. I can see how that would be like disorienting and, and very jarring. What um, now, uh, looking that you, being that you've been out for a while and you're, let's say, social media savvy, you're a, more of a public figure and all that, you know, uh, do you still get the tingles? Do you still go, whoa, this is this is just too much. I, I shouldn't be this visible. Or are you like, no, I'm embracing it. I'm, I'm, I'm open to this. I'm, I'm here for it. There's a built-in pause. There's a, what'd you ask me, you know, or what do I say? Um, my answers are always that way with my thought process is always going. Um, who's, who could this hurt if it could hurt anybody as I'm trying to answer in a normal fashion? Mostly it's no, I don't know what's going on now. And if I say something, it would be a total guess and i would be right if i was right then i'd be lucky um about the things that are going on but they're quite similar to the past so hits go down certain ways and tactics are certain and there's right. only so much before what are you going to do sneak right. up with a hot air balloon on me this time i mean it gets it gets repetitive so the things that come out of my mouth are old and dated and and i've not talked about anything i haven't gotten to go ahead to talk about but it's always that that little pause of what will my friends say about, you know, I'm yeah. sure there's some of my friends like hey, mouthy boy, shut up. You know, I'm sure it's out there and I know it's out there. Um, but I know that that's their problem, right? That's their problem. Inability to let go of something that's not secret anymore. Something that might be able to help other people. I'm not doing it to brag. I'm doing it to help other people. So it's just that pause of who's going to say something, you know, but yeah. there's always it, no, it's it's such a weird phenomenon. I've talked about this on the show with a couple of folks uh, that have been on, but that weird dynamic where it seems like sometimes, not universally, but sometimes in the veteran community, there's a sense of who the hell are you to stick your head up above the crowd? And it almost doesn't matter why you're doing it, but there's there you can sometimes get some of that feedback. And you know, when I'm looking at obviously you know your resume is something that stands out to anybody that's ever served and to plenty of people that never served do you feel like it's almost it's almost like the price you have to pay in order to talk about all secure and your mission is like okay i got to open up and here you go yeah delta yeah moog and let me just you know let you in and it, it, do you feel that and does it feel kind of like you're being taken advantage of to some degree and that's a little strong terminology but yeah. do you feel that to some degree that's that's exactly it. That's how it feels. I don't feel like anyone's taking advantage of me. I don't feel like my wife's, you know, she was she was like, do this book, do this book. I'm like, you have any idea what this is going to do to me um, in my tightest circles, you know? And of course, once yeah. the word got out, you know, of course, what are you a Navy SEAL now? I heard you're writing a book. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't have the abs. You have the hair, though. You have the hair, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I can yeah, do. Yeah. I, the abs, that's too difficult. The hair just keeps growing no matter what you do. So, you know, I did that. But, you know, and I would say, wait, yeah, I'm writing a book. Do you know what it's about? I'm like, no. I'm like, all right, then let me tell you, you know, and I'd, I'd kind of explain it to it. And then I'd get that. Oh, well, all right. Good job. You know, it's that yeah. everything I'm putting out has been run through Intel first. Right. They told me yes or no. And I surprisingly got like two no's, two, two different words. Yeah. It weren't even Which topics. Shocking. It's words. And then yeah. so I, I did a pretty good job anyway. So I went in with the intent of not, you know, divulging sure. anything. Sure. Not talking about things they didn't want to. And there were two words I removed and the book went straight out. And was approved by the unit before it even, you know, hit our publisher or anybody else in a, in a mass number to, to see it. But there's always those, you know, that, yeah, they'll judge you for whatever. But everything was always for good for me. Um, yeah. I've gotten it from the highest levels of leadership. You know, when I'm 
doubting myself. Hey, am I doing the right thing here? Do you want me to pull this? Is this wrong? Even though it's not wrong. Right. Like, no, you're doing great things. You know, just nobody likes to talk about it. Yeah. And then those you- that don't want to talk about it also be either jealous or angry just because, you know, I've, I've been told not to. But I've also had a lot of phone calls, five or six different people about how did you start that book process? I'm going to write yeah. one too. And I'm like, yeah. oh, all right, here we go. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think the fact that it's motivated by, you know, such a need and, and such a cause, it has to mitigate a lot of your concerns, right? Because it's not like, to go back to the celebrity thing, you're not walking up to people going, hey, I got a screenplay idea here for you based on my life. And, and l- let me get you in the behind the velvet rope and we'll talk about it a little more, you know, like it, it's, it's and not that there would necessarily be anything wrong with, you know, leveraging your own story. Uh, it's your story. It's your life. But certainly that the mission that you guys have is a screaming need. Um, not for me, because my marriage is perfect and has never had a flaw. And, right. and you know, we're we've met him. <laughs> <laughs> we've met people like that everywhere. We found the perfect guy. <laughs> yep. Yep. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm the one you've read about. Yeah. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. It's Thank just been you. flawless. It's, it's we're living the dream every day. <laughs> I'm going to hire you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, all these questions are going to be asking for a friend because, uh, you know, I've got a lot of troubled friends out there who need help. But, uh, you know. They're in a much larger club. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, they know me, so I'm able to ask these questions <laughs> on their behalf. Um, Tom, I want to pick up on one thing you said before when you said, you know, when people approach you that you you do what you counsel people not to do, which is to minimize it. What do you counsel people to do if you don't counsel them to minimize accomplishments or, or you know, respond to flattery or praise or anything like that that way? What's the right answer? People have earned what they what they've earned, right? You know if you've earned it. You know if you worked hard to do something. And if you go out, you know when you're bragging and you know when you're just answering questions. So people know what they're doing all along the way. To to hey, thank you for your service, or hey, you guys did so much. Oh my God, I can't believe what you do. I I would never join the military. So I have this affinity towards the military. I heard every story and it just starts to make me feel like, man, I didn't, I didn't really do that much. I just tried a little bit, you know. And, uh, it takes every person on this planet together working as a, as a, as a team to get everything done anyway. So for people to come up and build me up instantly, I want to tell them, don't do that. <laughs> right. I feel like they're built tearing themselves down when they do it. Cause most of the phone calls I get are, well, my service wasn't like yours or I'm a cop and I didn't do anything like you. And I'm like, you have no idea what I did. Right. Comparison is a thief of healing. It's the thief of, of growth. It's just, when we start comparing, you don't know, how many aspects have created those different scenarios and situations? There's so many different ways. So once you start comparing, I mean, you've shut down, really. People have shut down, and, I, and, I, and that's what I don't want people to do. I want them to reach out without feeling like I'm better or different. or Because I tell everyone, you jo- you've just joined a much larger family. You know, you think you're sitting in silence and you're all alone with your struggles. Well, you just joined a much larger family of people who admit life's difficult. You know, life is hard and marriage is harder and having a great one is even harder. And then maintaining friends. And oh, by the way, throw trauma on top of that of years and years of trauma that you don't know how to deal with. Yet you think you're trained for because you were trained to go to combat. You know, I hear it all the time. I'm trained for this. I'm like trained for what? Handling your emotions? Because no, I don't remember that class ever. So, you know, people yeah. think they're trained to deal with war. They've been trained to go to war, not deal with war. I, first of all, I just want to highlight and foot stomp that, that, that line that you had. And I don't know if that's a common one that you throw out a lot, but I'm going to try to remember that the comparison is the thief of healing. That's 
great. And I think that's great, especially for men. Um, I feel like, um, and I, I could be wrong. I'm not, I, I know in my experience, when you start to read other people's military biographies or autobiographies, memoirs, what have you, um, you can't help but initially start to compare yourself yeah, and okay. go, where did, where did my path go differently? Right. Where did, how did I make the choices I made? And, um, and there, there are a little bit of that is healthy, I guess, humility, you know, and being able to go, wow, you know, I can honor and respect what somebody else did, but too much of that and, and, and overdosing on that to, to any degree seems like, yeah, a real thief of healing. That's, that's well said. I really like that. That's a bumper sticker. I just want to. That was stolen from my uh, wife who probably took it from somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I no, I, say Brene Brown. I don't, I, I read a lot of these books Bre- now that yeah. I would never read. And then I come up with these quotes. I'm like, I didn't make that up. I know, but I read it somewhere. And I was like, I love your quote. I'm like, I don't know who to give credit for, but, but it was sounded good too. And I, I steal those things because those little one-liners I know kind of reach people. They That's what reaches yeah. me. Those little quick yeah. talk, little oh Pinterest gosh, quotes. That's, yeah. Yeah. So obvious it's stupid, you know. Well, you'd be like Winston Churchill, right? Every great quote's attributed to Churchill that he said it there. I'm like, really, man, he was just writing memes before memes. Yeah. Yeah, right. Seriously. Um, Jen, so you your journey um led you really into getting pedigreed as in behavioral science to some degree, right? And getting mental health qualified and all this stuff. Um what was that journey like for you? Was it empowering for you personally? Obviously, for the relationship, it did a lot. But just for you, what did you find that that understanding, that knowledge brought to you? Peace, honestly. Huh. I I will say the first few years of dating Tom, which was a long-distance relationship for years, two years. So really, we would see each That's other. A good, that was a good thing, though. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> At the time, I that break. was a very good thing. <laughs> Yeah. Give a little space. Yeah. We probably would not have made it. Well, probably not. Honestly, it's um, so at at that time, I was not only dating someone with very complex, untreated trauma, um, but I was working alongside of a lot of men who had complex, untreated trauma. So I think there was a piece in knowing that we weren't so unique that other people were struggling in the way that we were, but that took a while to even get that knowledge. For a while, I felt completely isolated, alone, frustrated, angry, resentful even, um, that I had to become a mental health advocate and professional almost, that I was reading, you know, at night, The Body Keeps a Score, and then a Bernay book, and then an Eckhart Tolle book, and then, you know, going online and researching. When I met Tom, he didn't even have a diagnosis of PTS. The army stamped his papers. No. And I, I remember the day for arthritis. I'm like, um, (laughs) I've seen black hog down. There's no way you came out of that unscathed. There's just no biological way. And as I started going to health coaching school, um, and really starting to learn the body connection to trauma, I would run through the house or I'd call him on the phone and say, Oh my God, this piece about adrenal fatigue, look how, this is affecting your body. Or I just spent, you know, three weeks studying sleep and the impact of um, sleeplessness, how that affects your body. Um, That's all of you guys. And so as I started making these connections, there was a freedom in it. There was a peace in it. There was a, oh my gosh, there's a explanation why he behaves the way he behaves. Because frankly, when you look at it from the outside, it just looks completely chaotic. 
and, and it doesn't make any sense. And so you feel a little crazy in it all. Tom, how did you respond to that when Jen's calling you? Were you like, all right, seriously, decaf? Or were you or were you like, no, I'm I'm here for this? Yeah. I'm like, right. wacko. <laughs> <laughs> I got a wacko here. Yeah. I thought here's a woo-woo girl that's gonna bring me spirituality and yoga. And I'm I don't know what to do with her. And I, you know, I, while playing the game of I want to date you at the same time, you know. Of, of <laughs> compromises we make mentally yeah so yeah sweet what you just said you know, like crazy you know um until until it started taking effect until i started listening and actually doing and not poking fun of and lying about doing um in fact i think it was eckhart Tolle. i just was thinking that the other day like what was the first lightning bulb moment and he read the four agreements i was like read this book it's short it's little like literally you can do this in a weekend, please read this. And then at work, everyone's like, what, what the hell happened to Tom? He's walking around saying, don't take things personally, or, you know, like started using all these quotes from the book. And but I could see the light bulb connection that I felt like he maybe hadn't had for 20, 25 years of just understanding his place. And was that persistence that got that done? Or was it, or Tom, did you just at one point just without her pushing, just make a shift on your own and decide, yeah, I want to no, embrace this. I would have never changed her persistence wore down my resistance. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and she won. Now I still fight it every now and then, but she's, uh, she's been winning that battle because she's right. I mean, she's right. You know, I've, 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 and it's the proper thing to do. I've spent my life trying to, uh, needing to be right all the time. Our decisions need to be right. And I'm screaming up and down that I'm right. And I'm like, I, I'm, there's no way I'm right. I know I'm not right. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to behave this way. So I have to admit I'm wrong or I have to admit I need help. You know, to me, it was admitting I was wrong to think I needed help, you know, which has shifted nowadays to me kind of trying to connect with people. You don't have to ask for help. Just ask for retraining. It's just something you don't know yet. Just like shooting mm -hmm. your weapon or CQB or other tactics you didn't know before. You didn't ask for help. You said, teach me. So come on over. We'll teach you how to act this way. You know, it's, it's all behavioral change. And if you don't think you have muscle memory developed in anger or conversation or how you deal with things over 20 years or 25, 30 years in the AAR military, process the AAR process, yep. picking out only the negative, right. and you don't think you bring that home, you're ridiculous to not consider that. And that's where I, the point where I was at of the awareness of man. I'm not right. I might as well admit it and stop fighting this and just give into the process. Yeah. It, so, it wasn't yeah. easy. It was, it yeah. was wrecked along the way a couple of times. Sure. That's, that's the path, you know? So one of the biggest questions that popped up for me in the little bit I was reading in the book and something I'd wondered anyway, could you, Tom, have been the way you are now and been in the unit? Or did you need to be that way then? And it's right that you are who you are now. I could have been both had I paid attention up front. All I, all I paid attention to was tactics and training and being the best. And me, me, just me. Now, is it a selfish thing? I think it needs to be a single guy thing, to be honest. Yeah. Or a single person thing to be in certain organizations because it's just not fair to those at home. And you can't live that life. And the army, the military is designed for separation, disconnection, and not, not being secure. So you need safety, security, attachment, connection. The military is anti all of that. 
for family for sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, it is a mature decision at an age where people tend to get married that if they're thinking of doing certain things that maybe they should consider a different option and, and just kind of not affect a family that you're not going to be with. Uh, most of friends I know, and there are some that made it with problems, obviously, but most I know are divorced and remarried yeah. host service. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the retirement thing isn't good for people who have never been together. And now you're together forever and you don't know what you're doing. And you're two different people. You're two different people after 10, 15, 20 years of being deployed and gone. So it's probably more work, like teaching someone how to shoot who already thinks they know how to shoot and they've got built-in anticipation recoil and they got bad habits you have to break before you can teach them on top of that. So I also think expectation is such a huge part of it. If you're a spouse that the expectation, as much as it can be, is realistic, I think you're in a much better space. But I hear a lot of spouses saying really unrealistic expectations also. So it goes on both sides of the fence where... I have to really put it into perspective sometimes like you've seen Jason Bourne movies, right? And, you know, of course, this is a little bit more Hollywood than not. But yeah, yeah, of course, I've seen these type of movies. Okay, and you've seen movies where guys go off to combat and these kinds of things that we've never been exposed to or seen in our lives. And we truly don't know what it's like to go overseas and to fight. And so sometimes the expectation isn't very realistic. Like, hey, he's going to get back from Afghanistan. And then, you know, on Friday night, we're going to go to my family's house for dinner. On Saturday, we're going to, you know, and this idea, like we're going to be a happy, loving family 48 hours after his boots are in the door is is unrealistic to you. So the stories we hear are he's in the corner, quiet by himself, won't talk to anybody. It's like, of course he is. Like give him that time, you know? And and honestly, one of the things that is so helpful for active duty families is to have plans, to plan everything just like service plans. How are you going away? How are we saying goodbye? Um, for a lot of guys, they're like, I'm checked out two or three weeks before I'm even gone. Yeah. And guess who's going to take that personally? The family. Yeah. But if there's a plan and like, hey, two to three weeks before I'm gone, this is the checklist that's going through my brain. I love you. I care about you. But you know, even though I'm still here, I'm not really here. Can you give me this time to prepare to go to overseas? my gosh, everyone's included in that plan and understanding and communication now versus, you know what, he's checking out. I want him to be with the family during this time. Again, that might be an unrealistic expectation, just like coming back home. Okay. You know, certain couples say, oh my gosh, you know, we we really have a difficult time in that re-engagement. Of course, it's like happy moments for the first, you know, day or so. And then we have a lot of troubles. One guy came up with an idea. Can I go to a hotel? for 24 to 48 hours when I'm back, just so I can unload everything that I need to unload and I'm better coming home at that point. Now, would that be great for him to call the spouse from a hotel saying I'm at a hotel? No, that's not the time you make that plan. But you know, if you have that plan before you leave and come home, everyone just has a much better communication, understanding and realistic expectation of what's possible. Yeah. It it seems to me, because obviously this is such a huge need and Tom, I want to pick up on what you said before that for the service member, having a realistic expectation of what they are able to give at that point in time. I mean, certainly Tom, in your case, I mean, your career has, you know, been one of the defining pillars of your life, is it not? And, and, and if you can't do that um, necessarily in a completely harmonious, balanced way, it's like, well, then I got to pick a lane. Uh, am I, am I going to be that, you know, husband or am I going to, go be an operator. 
and and it's not that that split seems in, that to balance both of those seems incredibly difficult to me. And I wonder, and I'm asking, I'm not I'm not suggesting this is the right answer, but I want to bounce it off you guys. When is the right time for people to listen to your message? So in other words, if I'm about to go through selection, is this the time I want to sit down and go, oh yeah, let me do this? Or is it like, hey, dude, you're just not in that place right now. This is not the right time, but here's the right time to hear this. Is there anything to that? Or is this something that should be inculcated from day one when you start to associate with the military just to kind of socialize it and get it get used to having those ideas in your bloodstream? That's that's our goal. And that's what we're doing with SWIC right now. They're bringing us in two to four times a year to talk to they're brand new people, the brand new group off the, the street, pipeline, you know, so the yeah. pipeline coming through wow. and we come and we hit them about when they're in the middle, maybe, maybe when they've gone through some of their training and they're halfway through and then we hit them before graduation again. So they're hearing it, you know, one day down the road when they leave and they go to that team, you know, and while we're there, we talk to the leaders as well, you know, cadre from, from, and the cadre and the leaders as well. So All we're hitting every wow. level to change this generationally. The new guys coming up, you know, and the old guys would normally say, shut up and rub dirt on, dirt on it. Now we're telling the new guys. Don't listen to that old guy. That gives you an infection. You know, that's yeah. that's what causes problems. The guys in the middle who are struggling what to do, you know, the 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 cadre in the middle it's with the leadership toughest. up above, they're hard. They've been to combat, they've seen it all. Now they're moving into leadership, but they don't know what to do. You got to get into leadership, you know, and the leadership's saying, be tough and don't show numbers and this and that. And you see burnout and that you see burnout big time too. there. Um, and they feel guilty about yeah. taking those breaks. Yep. I've left my team in combat. Well, I've been at war for 20 years, man. Give it a break. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just give yeah. it a break. Go, go teach now or something. And then they feel bad about that. So that two-year break, they feel horrible. And then they go back to war and, and there's more struggles. So integrating it all along the way, when a problem arises, I might think, oh, I heard Tom and Jen that one day say something or somebody that hurt us might notice something yeah you know, we're just trying a lot to of that too. create more awareness points along the way that we catch it earlier you know if you go without any help we see what happens people kill themselves at, at numbers greater than the enemy can can touch us right i mean they right. can't even touch us at the numbers we're killing ourselves we don't even have the it's right ridiculous. number they think it's 38 a day and you know and definitely it's yeah. tripled active duty suicides have tripled in the last two three years in a row so we know it's getting worse because it's the military is a big ship. They're going to make a change. But, you know, it's taken a long time to make that happen because there's a lot of scared people along the way. It takes money. Who's going to implement the change? We, we rotate every two years. We can yeah. sit on something long enough to pass it off to the next guy and not do anything effective. You know, but just make it look like we're working. So it's, it's difficult to affect change. So we wanted to hit it at every level. And I think that's key. To to do that versus, OK, when you become a leader, then we change who we are and we talk differently. Um, right. You, you right. change anyway, but you change in a way that, you now you have more souls that you're responsible for more than yourself. And it really affects you a lot more that people don't consider. You know, I mean, obviously, su veteran suicide is a big issue, justifiably so. But I also wonder about the second and third order effects um, that maybe don't get as much coverage. One of the things that keeps coming to my mind is kids. Um, the amount of families, the amount of military divorces that end up with kids really caught in that lurch. And I constantly think that, um, and this is my point of view, I'm not asking you guys to necessarily agree with this, but um, that for so many noble traits that lead somebody to join the military, you know, the cliched best of America, joining the military, and then children that will run from that and 
and associate that nobility with something twisted or wrong or perverted, not sexually necessarily, but just you know twisted and, and, and off um, because of the family situation. And I, to me, it's like, you got to be able to grow the next generation, you know, the kids and, and to have that kind of mental stability and whether or not they serve in the military, but to understand and place the military in its proper context. Do you guys ever run into that? Is that a, is that, has that ever been a major subject that you guys have tackled? How do you guys see that in your interactions with service members now? Oh my gosh. It's such an important we talk about that what we do at All Secure Foundation hopefully is generational change. Mm-hmm. That we're not just there for the active duty service member or veteran, not even necessarily just there for their spouse, um, but there for their children as well, because we know that trauma gets passed down. We know that the behaviors that might be coming home that aren't so um, wonderful in the home will get passed down as well. And in fact, we know just from the several times we've been at Bragg talking about recruitment, how down it is and and how there's a real issue with people not wanting to serve anymore. And so when Tom and I, we went to um, Central Washington University to speak um, to their ROTC program and probably the biggest one I've seen. I mean, that room was packed and we had a couple guys come up after who um, are in the pipeline to be Green Berets. They want to, they knew that's what they wanted to do. Their fathers were both Green Berets, but both of these young men talked about the trauma that was in their home. They talked about how their mothers were their heroes. Um, they really see their mothers as the strong figure. And, you know, you could tell the love was there for their fathers, but it was almost like both of those guys were questioning, like, it's kind of funny that we ended up here. Like yeah. we ended up in ROTC and that we want to be Green Berets because we see per- firsthand the effect of what that did to our mothers, what it did to us as children is to have someone who was violent in the household. And I don't think people even realize they'll say, oh my gosh, the greatest generation, those, those men came back from war and they were so amazing. And they are, I love World War II veterans as well. But what people don't look at is, they think that's the highest number of domestic violence after that war was the highest number of spouse and children abuse. So, and maybe that had something to do with don't talk about it. Maybe that had something to do with put it under the rug, go back and live your life normally, even though you've just been through the worst hell on earth. Yeah. Um, so the children have a higher suicide rate than civilian children. We know this already anywhere between 10 to 17% higher. So it's pretty significant. It is impacting our children. We are a war-torn country. Uh, there are innocent casualties of war here. It just looks different than overseas, but we have to recognize that. And we absolutely need more programs to support our children who have secondary PTS. I'll tell a lot of kids from around the world that just will email just general questions or kids doing college papers on, I did two of them this week. And, I, and you know, if I have time, I'll do them. And I, and a lot of the questions are, how was it? Is it this? I'm thinking about doing that. And, and I tell them straight up, listen, I'm not a recruiter, so I'm going to tell you the truth. A recruiter's job is to make it sexy and get you in. I said, it's, it's, it's a rewarding life. It's a rewarding career for you. You'll have the best training, the most money. You'll be around the best people. It's a long struggle, and you probably won't make it there anyway if you want to go to Delta, all right? You want to go SF or something else or the SEALs or something, depending on what service you're in, a branch you're in. It's a long struggle, and you'll have to focus your time on that. And when you're focusing your time on that, other things get left behind. And when you're done with that, whether you get married or not get married, it will affect who you are as a human being and you'll change. So if you go in knowing those things, most kids are like, yeah, whatever, I still want it. Hey, great. At least you know going in. 
It's going to change who you are. If you see something horrible, it's going to mess you up. But then again, that could happen as a civilian. You're just increasing your opportunity for it to happen now. Yeah. And I want to ask you actually a lot about that, about the change. Um, let me start with myself so I don't feel like I'm picking on you. Um, I mean, for me, I wanted to join the military because I wanted that extreme change that would make me different, not 180 degree different, but different enough and go, yep. And I think that's relatively common that, you know, guys join and go, I, I want to be pushed. I, I need to suck a little bit and maybe I need more. Maybe when I get there, I go, oh, yeah, I want more and more and more. Let me just keep pushing out and do more deployments and blah, blah, blah. But it's that need. And I, I've never been a woman, so I don't know what it is like for women, but as a guy, I feel like that's a guy thing that guys need to be pushed. Their muscles need to be exercised. There needs to be a degree of suck. Um, for you, Tom, what was the difference? I know you talk a little bit about it in the book, but what was the difference between before SF and after just SF when you first got the Green Beret? Did you feel different? Did you feel like a, a hill had been climbed or were you like, now this is a warm up because you quickly started to find out about the unit. Where was your head after that? What was the change? You know, I stumbled into so many things um, through friends or just recommendations. And I thought that looks cool. I want to do that with, with that much thought that it was a, it was a, a warm up for me. I mean, when I went in, I went in thinking, this is it. <laughs> this is it. I literally never made it out. I made, made it out of language school, went to fifth group for nobody was there, but me, you know, they were already deployed in the first Gulf war and I already had a selection date, so I couldn't deploy. And I was kind of, I was mad about that. I'd already missed Panama, you know, and ah, now I'm missing the first Gulf war. And I'm like, ah, I'm making all the wrong choices, you know? And we were in that era where you thought wars are only going to be two weeks long. Like, I was like, never, I don't think there's I'll ever going to be a big war again. You know, I yeah. missed my war, yeah. you know, yeah. and I, I missed the Gulf War. And I'm like, God, I suck. You know, and then I, you know, and then two years after I was in Samoa, so I was like, oh, that sucked. But <laughs> yeah. What, what what was the well, question? Well, no, no, sorry. <laughs> it's, 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 actually, I'm not even going to try you, to You, you took a perfect pause because actually that, that brings up the next piece. Did, was was Moog, was the after effect of Moog more significant than let's say becoming SF or even joining the unit that after that is like, Hey, there was me before that. And there's me after that. And there's a significant change. It was the reality of, of I'm going to die. It was Mogadishu. Even Delta was selection was okay. I was, I was fit as a fiddle, man. I was fine. I, I was fearful. I wouldn't make it because of my age and my maturity level. Who knows, you know? And right. I answered all the questions right, but I was told by other students, you know, this is my second time. I got told to come back and grow up. You'll be, you're young. You'll be told to go. I'm like, I'm never coming back, man. I'm not doing <laughs> this again, you know? And I made it. And so again, I'm still cocky and young and strong and I'm learning more and I'm, I'm confident. I want to go do my job, man. I want to go do my job. Like everybody who's trained wants to be tested out. Every man, at least growing up, wants to enter the tribe and become a man. And what is that crossover period? You know? Tribes back in the day had something to do. Now, is it college? Is it the military? Yeah. And then yeah. is it your job after that? Who knows? You know, it's something. Mine wasn't until Somalia. And then I then it got real. It got really real. And I thought, okay, this isn't just me doing stuff that's cool. This is life-saving shit. I'm never going to do that again. So I, I put my head down shucked away three wives and said, I'm going to along the way. So I'm going to never repeat this. I'm going to train so freaking hard that this won't happen again. 
And I think that defined how hard I worked after that. I was a hard worker anyway, but that really shut empathy, compassion and, and everything. I was laser focused and, and minimally, you know, sadly, super focused in one direction. What if you hadn't been? Do you think you would have ended up with the same career? Do you think if Jen had been there and you guys had, you know, found some degree of balance and harmony, do you think do you think you could have still done that or did this all happen at the right time? It happened. If I'd have met Jen, she'd have been another woman in the pile. You know, we know that. We know that I wasn't ready. I was, you know, and I know it's easy. It's not easy to sit here and tell other people, don't do that. You know, everybody does that. You know, filthy rich people finally make it to the top and they're dying like, don't do what I did. Well, okay. (laughs) Yeah, filthy rich doing what you did. And that's what people want. Richness or, you know, they want to contribute, whatever it is, you're going to throw other things away to go get what you want. And I think through awareness, you can still do that and bring things with you, bring a family with you and treat them right. But it takes the awareness and the focus could there's plenty of guys in the unit. There's plenty of professional athletes that have family lives that that they just put the effort into that versus when I'm done working, I'm going to go hang out with the boys some more. (laughs) You know, the tribe needs to break away at some point. The other tribe needs to come in, you know, that balanced life and. People talk a good game, but I don't see it happening a lot, you know, back in the day of, I love my family. It's 730, man. What are you doing here? Oh, you must have a newborn at home or something. You don't want to go home and do that shit because it's horrible. It's terrifying for guys like us to go home and raise children because we know we don't know how to do it. I was terrified more of being at home than I was at being at combat because that was where I was comfortable. And so we wonder why our families go away. and it's, It's because of what we do. It's our decisions. So, Jen, I want to ask you about Tom, and I, I'm, I was trying to surf through the book to find where it's written, and I'm not sure I found it. So I'm just going to sum up one of the things that blew me away. This was in the intro, I believe, when it was still being written, in the, when the book's being written in the third person about you and Tom. But you said there was some reference in there to the fact that when you met Tom, um, he commanded a room. Just naturally, there was an innate um, charisma and kind of command presence that he had. And especially because you had seen some of the tier two guys and normal soft dudes, uh, SF SEALs, and you were used to the machismo, the bravado and all that. And you saw something very different in him, as with many guys in the unit that um, kind of have a different attitude and a different approach. I'm going to ask this in a very facetious way, uh, but I'm just kind of I'm just kind of interested in, in what you think. You realize that you're the problem because every guy hears your that description of Tom and goes, "That's what I want. That's what I have." And if it takes shucking away three wives, I want to be that. I want to. I want to. I want to have a woman say that about me. You know, because it's it's Austin Powers almost. Is right. Women want him and men want to be him. I mean, it's yep. it's that. Um, how do you reconcile that now? I mean, do you, is that, is, is that something where you're like, uh, how do you feel, I guess, about people that would, or guys that are entering that pipeline and let's say the women that love them or the women that should be with them, but maybe can't be like, how does one reconcile that kind of person? Because probably that person is not going to be the accountant, um, or somebody else not to pick on accountants, but you know, the person that's doing a nine to five and coming home and being a dutiful person that's saying, let's go camping this weekend. This is going to be a different type of dude. Um, how, how do you reconcile that? Ooh, that is <laughs> what a question. <laughs> that is a 
a very um, important question every spouse should ask themselves is, am I in the right space? Am I in the right relationship? I am in a very, very different type of relationship. Um, I knew, you know, I, I didn't know a whole lot of unit people when I met Tom. I met him and he was with two other unit members. Um, so I met three. And then as I started meeting more and more unit members, like Tom's like, oh, you know, you were just talking to that guy, Pete. Yeah. He was like, oh, he was in the unit forever with me. I'm like, what? Like he does not fit the bill. And then, oh, this other guy and this other guy. And I started to really see like, you guys are all individuals on a team versus team guys who I felt like were more, um, they were more about the team. So they were an individual yet in a very team environment where these guys were individual individuals and then worked with a team. So I think I even started to understand them as different, that they are operating as individuals who can work on a team. And so even that's very different, um, highly individualized, I guess. So from meeting Tom to a different unit member, they can be very, very different. And so the relationships are very, very different. I've met unit spouses that have been with their husband for 25 years, 30 years. Mm. Um, there aren't many, but I've met a few. <laughs> There's a couple. And to talk to them, you know, really, when I started dating Tom, I started talking to the wives, like, what is this life like? Like, I don't understand what's happening with him. And what I found was nobody knew. And it didn't matter if, you know, I'm talking to general's wives or, you know, CSM wives. And I'm thinking they've got the answers because they've been here for 25 years. And they look at me. They're calling me for answers. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, whoa, no, time out. That's scary. Um, You know, and so. I think you, the wives that I've met have been drawn to this type of very alpha, you know, blood type O type of male. I mean, I knew what I was getting into with him to some degree. I knew he wasn't the accountant. I knew that, um, you know, we even have conversations. We just had one last week where I said, you know, I, I still want to see the world. I haven't seen the world, no. you know, I've, you've been to 63 countries. I've been to 11. Like I, that's been my dream is to see the world. You've already seen so much of it. You've already done the craziest things from extreme skiing to jumping out of airplanes at 30,000 feet, you know, to you've had this giant, giant life that I only know part of. And so I think there's a level of that that us spouses talk about as well. It's like we're married to these action figures who have had these really big lives, big personalities. Um, sorry, we've even talked about it to a degree, but narcissism um, comes into play. And I think that's part of the training too. Like you talked about was it was all about Tom for 25 years. I come into the picture and I'm like, I'm not that wife. That's just gonna you know, say, Hey, we should sleep in separate bedrooms, do what you want. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Like if we're going to be together, we're going to have a relationship. We're going to, it's going to be mutually respectful. There's going to be rules and guidelines to it. And at first he really, I think you kind of bucked it. Like, tried, you know, I like um, I'm going to wear the pants and I'm like, no, we'll both wear the pants. This is not going to be that type of situation. Um, and the spouses I have met who kind of are like me, the second, third or fourth wife, um, especially when the guys get out of service and remarry, it's a very different kind of spouse as well. Like I see the more hippie or woo woo or kind of more nurturing, empathetic. And I think to a degree, it's so sad because a lot of the wives that I've met will tell me I wasn't this way 25 years ago. You know, I wasn't hardened. I wasn't the B word. I didn't, you know, I didn't act this way before, but 
the service that I also endured for 25 years has made me hard and has made me cold, has made me not trust people either. So it doesn't just change the active duty member. It changes the spouse in their personalities quite significantly too. Jen, can we talk a little bit about your journey um, emotionally and relationship wise from your first marriage? Because obviously had this been your first marriage with Tom, you probably wouldn't have been able to cope with it the way you did, right? So what did you learn? How were you different than when you, than your first marriage and then your life had been? I, my first husband, if you put two opposites, like little diagram of here's the artist A type male and here is the masculine O type male, that's the situation I went from. Like the pendulum couldn't have swung any further. Um, but you know, the, the funny thing is I grew up as a tomboy. I grew up liking running in the woods and dirt bikes and kind of a tougher girl anyway. And so I felt actually more comfortable with Tom more at home kind of running with the boys. And I would say the biggest thing for me is due to childhood trauma and abuse. I made myself small my whole life and really had a tough time in insecurity and feeling very secure. And I will tell you, meeting Tom and have him hold me up the way that he has. And, and truly he has helped me address the trauma that I thought I've already dealt with that. I'm good. He's brought that to the forefront in a way that has helped me heal in a way that I know I wouldn't have without him. Is that Tom, is that because you've made a point of talking to her about it or is it just kind of, you're an example and something that just, I, I, I hate to use this word, but like inspires her to go, Oh yeah, I can shuck this. I've got you. And there's, I'm learning a lot just by being with you and seeing you. I think both. We definitely talk about it. I, when I met her, it was, it was people would bump into her and she'd say, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm this, this person who gave away to everything, you know? And I'm like, why are you doing that? I just kept asking, why are you saying you're sorry? I'm, well, I'm just, we bumped in. I go, why are you sorry though? Excuse me or pardon me, but you're apologizing for everything. And I think that started some awareness like a lady yeah <laughs> it's just started some awareness of hey stop bowing down to everybody around you don't be a jerk and i was trying to take her to the jerk side you know hey you run this place you know but somewhere in the middle is where she ended up where to where you know respect but respect for herself too she just gave away everything all yeah the i time didn't know I boundaries first, no boundaries of, of where to stop with her giving for for people even even to me even helping me nearly killed her um before she realized she can't really help me. She can show me the way she can nudge me, mm-hmm. scream at me, but she can't do the work. I had to do the work. And so that was driving her crazy. But I think you doing lot- the work helped me do the work. <laughs> so like it, honestly, he, he, when he started transcendental meditation, I would have never done that. I found that looking for a trauma, you know, something that would help with trauma. And so going to every appointment with Tom opened up all of these other healing modalities for myself. And frankly, Everything except for transcranial magnetic stimulation, which yeah. I would absolutely do if I hit another depression point. Um, depression isn't something I'm fighting right now, so I didn't do that one. But every other treatment we've done together, and I think that's been remarkably powerful as well. It, it strikes me that this is one of the subjects you never hear about, but what the spouse can learn from the service member. We we do hear an awful lot about the decompression and the nurturing and all that, but that that should be a give and take, right? That there should be something learned. What do you guys encourage um, service members to give their spouses in terms of emotional support? What do you encourage spouses to learn and kind of soak up from the service member? Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot. We, spouses yeah. have a lot of um, 
anger, a lot of resentment, the, the resentment, you know, the mistress that is your job. Um, and, and the guys come, the, the, the service members come out thinking, well, I, can't, I don't want to share it because it's either boring or gross horrific. or horrific or, or, or I'm going to save them from it, from it, you know, or they but, won't look at me the same way. Right. So all I of share. that, all of that mm. going on in your brain all, and you're not talking. So the spouse is thinking, is it me? What's going on? I, I thought it was me. We hear all this all the time. I thought 100%. it was me, you know, until they talk and we, 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 you know, service member, you don't have to tell all the gory grotesque things that are, or the secrets and guys are like, well, I'm a secret squirrel. I can't share anything with my spouse. I'm like, come on, man, shut up, dude. Really stop. All right, let's stop. We're in a room alone now. Stop. Stop acting like a secret squirrel. All right. Talk to your spouse. You don't have to tell her the secrets. Tell her how you feel. She probably can help you with your emotions a little bit better than we can help ourselves with it. But once you're sharing and talking, you're connecting and communicating. You feel like you need each other for that. But when you don't, you feel that resentment of it never shares anything. I don't know anything. People are so jealous of what she got to go do. The spouse like, I want to do that. How can I do that? I want to see what he does. He never tells me what he does. It's it's yeah. ridiculous that you don't share that 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 job that keeps you away from your family most of the time. If you shared it, you know, then it's the the couple is part of it versus just an individual. Versus the military being this mistress. Yeah. It almost feels like an affair um, because you know that the love is really big and you know the commitment's really big. So to feel left out of it's pretty crappy feeling. And I don't think that the guys or gals or the service members think that way. They're not, they really are trying to protect, but it's causing a huge rift. And like Tom said, if, if I don't know the story and I'm looking at this, you know, this service as an affair, I'm going to fill in the blanks and the blanks that I fill in because I don't have information could be a hundred percent inaccurate. So communication, I can't, I mean, I can't emphasize it enough how important it is to talk, talk, talk. Now we'll have guys who look here, our podcast or something, and or we'll go out and speak. And they're like, uh, so I went home and I talked to my wife for like four and a half hours. And I told, told her, her about every single deployment and she's kind of freaked out now. Can you talk to her? So we, we kind of encourage the drip of information now. Like to include that, like maybe mosey. one deployment or mosey, mosey one little story. Yeah, ask how yeah. you feel and touch up points. And there's actually an amazing book called um, by Dr. Gottman. So I encourage people to Google Dr. Gottman, Gottman Institute. There's TED Talks, there's um, books that he's written. And he's one of the best um, guys that you could go to to learn. Like Tom said, you teach me how to be in a relationship. This guy will teach you how to be in a relationship, how to fight fair, how to write those rules. People will come to us like, I don't even know where to start. We didn't either. You know, we had to go. Nobody considers they need help in their relationship. We just take it for granted. We go home, right? I go in a room and ask 400 people, how many of you seek therapy, even though you don't have a problem? Maybe a hand or two, a couple or two, you know, uh, we do. Good. Because why wait till it's broke? That's what the military teaches us. Take care of things while they're working. Yet with our relationships, we let them tank before we finally go get help. And then it's so far gone. We've already done so much damage. It's hard to recover from versus maintenance, right? It's going to break. work about repair? Maintenance. You're going to fight. You're in a relationship. We talked about people to make rules for when you fight. So when you fight, you fight fair. People don't even consider it. Well, we have laws of land warfare. When we go to war, we make rules. Why don't you, we consider having rules at home? Because we don't think we're going to kill each other. Yet it happens all the time. I could see a service member being very open to that because you're speaking their language, right? You're talking TTPs and you're talking left and right limits exactly of things and all that. Do. But speaking what about the, language. yeah. And then what about the spouse? How does the, does the spouse go? 
what what's all this army talk huh That's uh, stupid. Yeah, yeah like frankly, like hey we just gotta feel it it's right here it's in my heart it's in my chakra i gotta go from here like is it do you get pushback on it because they're they just get turned off two, by the rules there's two different types that i found well of course there's a wide variety with 21 million veterans so it's a little bit of a wide uh, assumption here but what i typically see is either the spouse who is embodying and emboldened by the service they're the ones that are going to wear the camo pants get tattoos and really want to identify alongside the service member and then you have the other service member uh, service member spouse who wants nothing to do with service they feel resentful that they're being called into work um, there's times where we'll go and speak to the spouses. We'll have one spouse in the room. We're like, where is everyone? And then I'll get a hold of the key spouse or somebody and say, what, what's going on? They're like, we didn't even know. No one tells us. So, you know, there's a level of, I didn't know to, yeah, I'm there and I'll, I'll be the first one there. And, you know, I'm going to shoot guns and identify with this. And you've got the, the other that spouse have been there before and it was nothing. horrible. So they'll never go back. Yep. You know, and it's like, well. It's that restaurant you talk about 20 years ago. Oh, hey, you're going to San Francisco. Go to, you know, Slifka's. We're like, does it even exist anymore? Is it still there? We're living yeah. on a bad memory, you know, from yeah. a long time ago. So many bad spouse memories of, hey, I went to those meetings. They're awful. So there's so much work to do in the spouse community. And it's even harder to kind of communicate with the spouses because you got to find them. I, I know where to go get the service member. I know how yeah. to go talk to them. I'm going to show up at your base. But to get and reach the spouses is very difficult and how you communicate with them is, could be very challenging to you. I'm going to ask a question that probably there's no right answer to, or maybe even an answer to, but who makes the first move? Who needs to be the bigger person who needs to, um, and it might, it doesn't have to, we don't have to define it as spouse versus service member, but even just by emotional traits, who's the one that should be reaching out that should have the bandwidth to make this work. Mm-hmm. I would say the one with the most issues, <laughs> but they don't typically have any bandwidth left over. Um, you know, yeah. I'd take either. I'd take either to start something. Yeah, just start. But I also know it gets aggressive, right? Yeah. You start something and it can get aggressive. It can be scary and and you'll fight it off. I know I fought it off. I don't want to admit that. I'm, you know, I'll play along for a bit. All the games we play to the point of I just stand on stage. I go, look, I'm going to remove all of your excuses, man. Give me, give me one. I'll, I'll remove it immediately because I know it's an ex- bullshit excuse of why you're not doing something better for yourself. We're afraid. It, the fact that we don't want to admit it, it just says we're afraid. We're living in fear yeah. versus versus love. And, and we're, we're just fighting it. And we don't even know why. And we won't admit it. And those are the hardest. We I move on those. But but you have an amazing, like, really, one of the most amazing things you could do is have the referee with you. And that's what we'll say is bring the mm-hmm. third party in. To have these first discussions, if you don't know how to start it, you don't know where to take it, you're afraid it's going to be inflamed or, hey, typically my wife and I are going at it when we try to have this talk. Bring in the referee, yeah. bring in the third party. That's why therapists are there. You know, at All Secure Foundation, we have an incredible therapist who, honestly, the reason why we do the work that we do is because of her, is because we couldn't have those first conversations initially in this house without explosions. And so we would go and have those tough talks in front of Stacy and she gave us a safe place to do that. And there were times, honestly, we would leave on a Tuesday, go see Stacy. We, you know, it could be heated. It could be passionate. It could be tearful. And Stacy would say, okay, you know, this, this subject's really tense for you guys. 
And I don't think you should have this conversation at home by yourself. So I think it needs to happen in front of me. And so until next mm-hmm. Tuesday, when I see you, you're not going to talk about it. And that was very challenging too. But, you know, I think one of the great things about service members, you give them orders and they're like, this is the order. This is what we're doing. We're not she talking about that. it till next Tuesday. <laughs> she had never worked with military spouses or military personnel yeah. at all until us. And then when we hired her, it, it became one of those things where she starts dropping off her civilian clients to bring in more military. She's like, wow. not that civilians don't have issues, but we're on a whole nother level. <laughs> right. Of right. Oh, my cat doesn't, you know, purr enough. Oh, okay. Versus I, I murdered so many people. I don't know what to do. Oh, well, if you do this, this will happen. Military people are like, oh, those orders, I'll do that. And they get yep. busy and they do it. She goes, I tell them what to do and they do it. So they, you tell them what to do. Like, oh, okay. Well, did you do that? Well, not last week. Military guy's like, I did it five times, you know, and it didn't work the fourth <laughs> time, but I didn't take notes. So she's, she's, she's adamant about that, that most take it on yeah. when given direction and they know it's going to work. They'll take it on and they'll run with it and they'll work hard at it. So let me just say all cat lovers and accountants send all of your hate mail to Jen and Tom. Uh, although I did start the account. So let's talk about the, the service members um, that you guys treat. So there's two lines of effort, as I understand it, and correct me if I got this twisted, but you guys basically have two lines of effort. You have the counseling piece, right? And then you have the physical piece, the cleansing and all that. Um, it seems that the cleansing is for anybody because it looks like that's open to anybody, right? You can download right. the program and it's a yes. six week cleanse, but the marriage counseling, um, is that for soft personnel only? Our retreats, retreats are. <laughs> our retreats are for soft only combat deployed personnel, the hardest, the top hit, the worst ones that need help. Those are the retreats. Okay. Um, the counseling that we do every day of the year is for anyone that needs help. Got you. Anyone. Got you. Talk about those retreats, if you will. So do you, is there a place you always go? You don't have to dime it out if you don't yeah. want, but I mean, do you have one spot that you're like, yeah, this is the perfect spot for it. And just what, what what's the mechanics of it? We do. We have an amazing place called Big Cedar Lodge, um, right outside Branson, Missouri on Table Rock Lake. And uh, Johnny Morris, who is the owner of well, the outdoors, outdoors. all outdoors. He owns Bass Pro Shop, Cabela's, and gotcha. et cetera. Um, so that's his place. Um, he is a very generous donor. He pays for all of the accommodations at his place. So he's a huge, huge military supporter. His father fought in the Battle of Bulge, um, came home with his own issues, of course, um, that he witnessed through his life um, and a very close relationship he had with his father. In fact, he started Bass Pro Shops out of his dad's liquor store huh. um, in Springfield, well. Missouri. So. Um, we do our retreats down there because there's a couple things. It's gorgeous in nature. You're right on the lake. There's tons of hiking and boating and, and really that connection with nature. We really encourage as a healing tool and mechanism that you can take with you anywhere. Um, we really want to make this accessible. So from Thursday night until Sunday, you're going to spend time, uh, with Tom and I and Stacy stone, who's a therapist. And, you know, it's not a death by PowerPoint situation. We only take eight couples at a time. Um, we are going to do the work. It's like a Monday or a Saturday, Sunday, nine to three, but uh, Stacy's going to teach a technique. Tom and I will say, this is how it pertained to our life. This is how it showed up in service, or this is how it showed up in retirement or transition. And then they go and practice it. They'll literally go off into some little area, practice that way to fight fair, practice that way to communicate. How do you open up a scab and then close it again? Um, it so that'll be all weekend of here's a tool. 
here's go practice it. Here's a tool. Here's go, go practice it. it. Even in the evenings, they have a date night that's funded. They're even going to have homework that they have to do on date night. And, you know, I think when both parties come in, there's a little bit of an eye roll at some of it, a little bit of, is this going to work? Right. And by the time they leave on Sunday, we've had several people say, listen, we both had one signature left on the divorce paperwork, literally, you know, mine or his. And, you know, through tears on Sunday, they're saying, we get it now. Like we can battle this. We can fight this together because for so long it's been him versus me instead of us versus the problem. And they realize, you know, when, when you join forces and you have a battle bunny, you can truly fight anything. Um, while you were talking and I'm picturing this retreat and what you guys are saying to people, um, the question came up. So it's, it might seem out of left field, but I don't know. It's your fault. It just came to me while you were talking. <laughs> I was like, I, I through all those reasons. Um, is manhood the problem or the solution? Depends on what your version of manhood <laughs> I is. I was going to say. If yeah. manhood is being a tough warrior that only takes care of, you know, problems, then no. If manhood is taking care of problems and loving those around you and showing that love is the way and not fear, then yeah, I think manhood can be the solution. Um, yeah, it depends on your version of manhood, I guess. I know yeah. some guys that think manhood means, you know, killing things and, you know, what hunting and fishing and, oh, okay, not great. I don't do much of that. So I guess I'm not a man, but I think, <laughs> I, I think manhood is, is, you know, being a good human and you're a man doing it. How, how much, how much is, um, and I'll Tom, I'll ask you, cause you have more experience being a man than Jen does. <laughs> um, <bit>. So uh, <laughs> how much is the noble fight? central to being a man how much is it having that sense of purpose that sense that every day there is something that i'm about and and i it's my war whatever that is and that's not just what gets me up out of bed but it makes me focused uh gives me purpose gives me underlying strength and and thinking outside of myself and i'm making i'm I'm, i know it's a bit of a leading question because i'm making it sound really appealing but I've had this discussion with a couple of people and they've said, no, the social connection is more important. Um, it's more central to being a man. And um, where do you stand on it? What, what do you think? Or is it something else that I'm not even thinking of? What's important to me to feel like a man is to make the legal, moral, and ethical decisions I know I need to make along the way and to not alter from that in any way, because that mm. starts to break me down and to feel less of something. Um, I look at manhood as, is is just be, I'm a human and I'm a man by birth, you know, or nowadays, I don't know, I'm not even getting all that. I can't even keep up, but you know, to me by birth, I was a man and being a good human while I'm a man, you know, doing the right things. So you're not placing a lot of mythic importance on like that concept of manhood. It's like, well, this is who I am. This is yeah, what I'm I do. Man. So Let's and be good. I should be a yeah. good human being and good to good to people and show them yeah. the right way with the tools that I've been given or or learned along the way. You and know, then you're really good at opening of, pickle jars. Too, yeah, yeah, and I can like open that. pickle jars. But that's helpful. My manhood before was predicated on, and I need to contribute. I need to contribute to things. I'm the kind of person that needs to have a, a goal, an item to work on. If I don't, I kind of lay there, float there, and like ah, oh, something, you know, something, and then. And then what do I create something? Ah, and then, and then there's the problem, you know, idle hands, right? What right, is it? It's right. A, so yeah, when I have a goal, a mission, a journey, something, I'm on it like a dog on a bone until it's done. 
and, and I like to get things done right away. So I, I, I'm on it hard until it's done. And then, okay, what, what now? I mean, so as long as I always have something to drive for, and that's what saved my life, I think, was having a purpose. I had done everything I was going to do. I'd done the hardest things. There's nothing will be this hard. You know, I was wrong, but I thought at the time, nothing will be as hard as going to war and fighting sure. with men and hunting down humans and that, that don't want to be found. And, oh, ooh. man, the hardest thing I've ever done was get a hold of myself. Um, I reel myself back in and realize that just kindness, man, I bringing back empathy and compassion for people and not judging them, right? Being more curious and less judgmental to people whenever I saw them. And not look at somebody and, oh, judge immediately on why they're homeless or why they don't have a job or why they're acting the way they are. I try to go in now after meeting Jen and, and trying to live this life of, why are you there? Let's try to break you down and figure out how we can help you or get away from you if you don't want help, you know, because you got to want the help. But, you know, it was... Uh, let me, let me piggyback on top of that um, when you talk about, you know, the purpose and being mission focused and, and, you know, constantly task oriented. Why didn't you end up going into contracting? Why didn't you end up having a second career in the military industrial complex and, and following suit with that? Were you, was your fund meter pegged? Were you done? Were you like, I, I don't need to be going back overseas. I've kind of ticked all those boxes and I'm good. No, I moved to Mon Jordan 10 days after I retired and lived there about almost two years and ran a program training started out as a range guy, whatever. And then General Harold said, hey, we want you to run a program training 100 Jordanian soldiers at a time for a four month period to be special forces. I'm like, uh, no, that's not what I do. I was in Delta, not SF long enough to, you know, that's an SF right, job. Right, no, we want right. you to do it. And I'm like, I fought it. And then I, I, I took that job over for a year and a half, hired 10 other SF guys to help me run these 100 and, and ran it until the Jordanians spent all their money, you know, and ran out of money or, or whatever happened. Um, that's when I came back home. And was lost for a bit. We started the entertainment industry, which almost ended my life because it was like, I'm teaching civilians how to shoot zombies. And I used to do this for a living and actually kill people. It was just, it all came crashing down one day. So we co-founded another special operations training firm um, that we stayed with for a bit before it became overwhelming to Jen. You know, the guys we're training don't come back, some of them. And I don't like that shit. So after years of that, she was, she came up with the idea of, of, I'm the den mother here. I'm helping all these guys with their problems yeah. at home. You know, we should do this all the time. So that's oh. when she started, you know, working on the foundation while I kept working so we could eat food. And then she created these jobs and these positions to bring over and be able to sustain this and found business partners to help us out. And here we are. <laughs> Jen, what a what journey. Was, yeah. I mean, so I, I, I love that story and I'm glad I didn't read the book if that's in the book, because I'm glad I just found that out. I mean, that seems like a very natural evolution and the right way for that to birth that, you know, it wasn't a hard 180 degree shift of going, all right, let's do a nonprofit. But it was yes. like naturally evolved out of a need. What did that mean for you, Jen? What did that mean for you to suddenly be so immersed in that culture and talk a little bit about that den mother, you know, yeah. aspect? I'm so glad you asked that. Everyone looks for that defining moment where I was like, that's enough. Now I'm going to go and start a nonprofit. They're like, what was that defining moment? And I'm like, three and a half years of watching was enough. You know, that that was my defining moment was time um, and really seeing, you know, I might be with a SEAL team and then the next iteration I see them, I'm looking at these guys that are 24, 25 years old. They're coming back from a deployment looking 40. 
you know, and, and just to see the weight of the war, the weight of the trauma, the weight of making one little wrong decision is not a little wrong decision. And I, I didn't know that before I really saw this world and it seems obvious, but I think one of the defining moments for me is we were on an exercise. There was a tripwire. Um, an SF guy had set the tripwire off. And then of course he's marked as down. So the helos are coming in, the medevacs happening. Um, but not only was he tagged as dead, the guy behind him was tagged as dead. And then the guy behind him was loss of uh, limb. And he had a complete and utter meltdown. Like I, I hadn't really seen that before. Mm. You know, people have things where they get tapped out, but like complete loss of composure, complete, yeah. I mean, screaming, pacing in circles. And I'm like, Oh, I looked at Tom and I'm like, do we help? Like, what, what do we do? And he's like, just stay here and watch and to stay there and watch this man have a complete and utter mental breakdown because the impact of that mistake of walking where he shouldn't have walked resulted in his death, the death of the guy behind him, the loss of limb for his brothers behind them. And just to see that kind of weight on a young man's face of this decision would have cost me my life. And to speak of the accountant before, yeah, that, that accountant is crunching numbers that could cause his business, you know, um, that kind of stress across the board is, is deadly and it's deathly. And to see that over and over and over again, I would have friends like, Oh, you're going out with the seals for a couple of weeks. Like, yay. And I'm like, it's not top right. gun, not looking at abs. Like this is not the scenario ever. Um, it's seriousness, it's, um, dedication, it's sacrifice and the amount of, um, stress and pressure, even if there's no trauma there is intense. Um, and it will impact body, mind, and spirit. Absolutely. And so really, as I started talking to the guys, they started seeing Tom, he lost 65 pounds, um, over this time he, you know, started smiling actually. Um, and you could just tell there was a difference in him. So it might be like, I don't know, team two who had seen us two iterations on the third one, they're like, wow, he's really different. What is he doing? And so I just started sharing like, Hey, you know, you guys might need to sleep and you should not eat out of the gas station all the time. And, um, you know, be really considerate about what you're putting in your body. And, and so I started really in this kind of health and wellness area. It started with the body before started the with the body. Stuff. Yeah. And mm. then I think probably over that year of just talking to the guys, where do you need most help? And I kept thinking, oh, it's going to be in this PTS realm. It's going to be help me, you know, feel better. Nine out of 10 asked me, how do I be a better father? How do I be a better husband? Um, I'm 30 years old. I'm going through my second divorce. I never, my parents have been married their whole life. I never thought I'd be that guy. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, I had one guy tell me I'm going to hell anyway for everything I've done. So what does it matter? Um, and so I started hearing these much bigger questions and these much bigger problems. And I started asking the guys, what if we had an organization that helped you as a couple or helped you as a family and the excitement, the little light that would flip in their eyes of who do I call for that? You know? And I'm yeah. like, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> let, let me ask you guys a really loaded question since you mentioned that, you know, and this is something I think we've all heard before that, Hey, I'm going to hell anyway. Um, where does organized religion play a role in people getting better? Um, and I know that's putting you guys on the spot a little bit, and it's a weird subject for a lot of folks, but how do you integrate that or, or do you, or do you, is it a totally separate line of effort? What do you think? 
Body, mind, spirit. I would say organized religion could help by providing funding, places, counseling, physical things. You know, you can tell people to pray all day. It's like doing 22 push-ups. That, that's awareness. It doesn't really help unless. So organized religion has money. That's why they're organized. They can use that money to hire people or to pay people to help those in need. Um, I think spirituality more plays a role. Sure. Um, than organized religion. To me, they're different. Organized mm-hmm. meaning I got to go to church to pray. Sure. To me, I can pray right now while I'm having a conversation with you in my head. Right. I, to me, that's what I feel about it. Um, I think yeah, you I, have I, to address it. Absolutely. We work with a lot process. of chaplains. A lot of people are turned off by the chaplains that might do this, that might do that. And again, that's judgment from the past behavior of someone else. Um, and pe- fear. People want to do well. Chaplains want to do well. They have to throw a religious theme in it because that's what they do for a living if they're going to pay money to go do that thing. So there's things that have to happen. That's business. That's the way it is. But if you listen to the message and not concerned about who it's coming from or where it's coming from, and the message are generally, hey, love one another, you know, open up, share the same things with just a religious tone to it. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things that... Mm. <laughs> you that we can use in fact that's what the chaplain just said to us yesterday and i said yeah I, that's a practice that tom and i absolutely 100 believe in is that we don't go to bed angry um but i think so many service members turn away from spirituality even those who are raised in organized religion i've heard that sure. too listen my dad's a pastor down in kentucky i'm not right. going back home well why not well because he's a pastor in Kentucky yeah. and you know, look at how many people I've killed and, you know, even a woman or even a child or, you know, there's no way that this, this family member, even a father will forgive me. I've heard that too. And so really forgiveness, self-forgiveness is a critical component of healing from this type of trauma. And most often, not always that can come from a spiritual help. It does, um, when we talk about spirituality, um, which I agree, Tom, is probably a better way of talking about it than necessarily organized religion. Although your points about the resources of organized religion, I think, yeah. is well taken. Um, God, is there room for God in this? Is that something you guys even talk about um, besides what your personal feelings may be? How do you reconcile all this with just factoring God in so it's not always just about the person? Or do you? Yes. Um, we talk yes. about God, light, source, whatever it is you call it. So we don't, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to marginalize anybody or anything. We want to help those who need help. We don't get political. We don't, I mean, we don't do anything. I mean, I know people think, oh, you're military. We know where you sit. No, people don't know anything. Right, they, right. They guess a lot and they'll convince themselves they're right. But we don't want to marginalize or leave anybody out or discriminate for any reason. Um, I think that, you know, we do talk about God. Um, we do talk about, you know, we're not a, like Tom said, we're not affiliated with any religious organization, but I do believe body, mind, spirit is absolutely a critical um, journey that everyone has to take, whether you're in service or not. And I think, you know, even for myself, raised Catholic, went to Catholic schools my whole life, went through that she's 20 with a Lutheran. <laughs> That's okay. Oh. Dear God, this show needs to end what right now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I went through, you know, you go through the rebellious 20s and I think I was, you know, I'm atheist now or something, you know, to break from the church right. and really took me a long time to come to the place of where I'm at, which is a very spiritual person, um, which I've defined sort of my own rules of, um, of what that looks like for me. And, and Tom has too. And, and frankly, to watch him 
first it was all body, right? And then mind. And, and we really were focusing there. And it's only been over the last year that Tom has really started to unravel moral injury of thou shall not kill mm-hmm. his whole life. He was told very passive uh, family as well. His father always taught him to turn the other cheek. Um, even when he was being bullied, it's walk away from it. So, you know, when I met Tom, it was a hundred percent bravado and it was a hundred percent, you know, um, this armor that was so thick. And I would ask him like, you know, not in the sense of like, it's like very cringy thing I'm about ready to say, but oh, no. um, what did it feel like to take another life? And I know that could come from someone in a cold conversation that's taken very impersonally and, and wrong. Sure. You should never walk up to a service member and ask them that. Um, however, we have a little bit of a different relationship as husband and wife. And so I had asked him and when I initially asked him, it was thoughtless. It was cold. It was calculated. It was, they deserve to die. They all should die. I don't care that they're dead. I'd kill more to a place where he has healed so much body, mind, and spirit where he could still say, listen, I did what I did. It was me or them. And I can be at peace with that. However, I still have to address the forgiveness that mm. I self-forgiveness. No, he doesn't need to ask God. He doesn't need to ask me or anyone else for it at this point. He's done that work, but for him to say it was me or him and to reconcile that is a very, very personal journey that is, is 100% his own. And that's only been unraveling in the last year. I can't play that game that I don't think of the other people's families that I packed up and went off to war. They packed up for whatever reason, money, whatever reason, and went off to fight me to them. I'm the bad guy because of the way they were been raised, you know, and to me, they're the bad guy. It's easy to dehumanize the enemy and you have to, to do your job. You have to, to go in and take lives thoughtlessly. Years later, I sit down, I think about the kids that hate me now because of their dead father, the mothers who have gone without and the life that they struggled. It's easy to go, well, they, they were born into it and that's their fault or, or, well, that's what they chose. Did they choose it? I don't know their story. So right. to put, you put a more human side to, I call it recruiting, got me in to do that reality. You know, when you walk away and retire, nobody really helps you with unraveling everything you might've done in those years, you know, without thought, muscle memory, threat. I enter a room. I don't look at faces, colors of skin, clothing. I don't care what you're wearing that day. I look at your two hands as I'm running with a weapon and I see two hands. If I see a threat in one of them, it's dead. And when the room's done, I'll follow it up with a, it makes sure everyone's really dead. And then I figure out what's going on. Sure. You have the rest of your life to uh, consider that. Does who it kill who, who they were attached to and who loved them and the story behind it. And, it, and it's there. Sure. Sure. You can, you can fool yourself your entire life. You know, you know, you're fooling yourself. It matters or you wouldn't be thinking about it at all. Does it have to be F them, F them, F them? Does it, is there a room for, um, I guess moral clarity, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that you can't, you, you, you don't have stuff to forgive yourself for, but a sense of, look, I know writ large, I know why I was there. I know what the cause was. I know who I was representing and I know who they were representing. And there is a clear, and this is uh, obviously I'm speaking about myself right now, but to me, there's a big moral difference that I can, I can write out. And for me, I've always been um, very black and white. I'm like, hey, I know the side that I signed up for. 
and I know the side that they signed up for. And it, this goes back to years ago, many lifetimes ago, when I was a prison chaplain. I, you know, I I was acutely aware that, I, and I still believe this, that mankind is innately good, but th- not all people know that. And <laughs> to the degree that they associate and hitch their wagons to the wrong stars, they will have to pay the certain price because they just made those bad decisions. And that's between them and God. And I don't have to get in the middle of that unless I have to get in the middle of that. And now that decision's taken away from me. Um, does that, do you agree with that? Or do you think that there is a degree of, um, for lack of a better word, moral relativism that kind of comes into it where it's like, ah, we're all just pawns in the same great game and all that. And I only ask because I hear that a lot in the veteran community. I don't personally agree with it, but I'm always interested in what other people think. Cause I know I only really represent myself. I think people are pawns when they don't research what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If they just blindly spew out, regurgitate what they hear, then they're pawns. And people know when they're pawns. I've taken the pause in my life to stop and stop, you know, regurgitating the things that my party, my people, whoever I follow do. And I've pulled back and am taken the stance of well, both, you know, if it's political, both parties are screwed up, man. Who who do you think is better? Come on, man. So I, I vote policies. I don't, I don't. I didn't work for a man. I worked for the office, you know, and politicians can say whatever they want. doesn't make it true. And our, you know, our constitution holds up and the Supreme Court has been holding up throughout our life. So it causes chaos and stress and pressure and divisiveness, which is what people need to get you to pick a side. So you'll vote and they can kind of determine who's going to win. You can be pawns in that if you let yourself. I see a lot of pawns and I would I would actually think there might be less pawns on our enemy's side at times when it's more religious and holy and that's all they've learned. And by God, we're wrong to them. You know, yeah. you couldn't sit down and have a conversation with them because they don't know any other knowledge. So to pull back and think of that opens up your aperture for, wow, I still, I still am fine with it because we both showed up to the same party with the same ish rules. I had more rules and I won because of training money, whatever. Oh, we're big America. We bomb them from a distance. If I can kill you from 10,000 miles away because where our technology does it, then by God, I'll do that. And they would do the same. Look at the drones they're using. So I don't want to hear about how we're smarter and richer. So it's unfair. If you show up to the fight, knowing what I have, you're the dumb one, man. I'll tell you that. And I'm sorry. And I walked away from that battlefield. I feel good about that. I feel justified. It's okay. I I wasn't the pawn at the time. I was sort of a pawn because I was just doing my job was my answer then. But now I look back, I'm like, no, I chose that job. I volunteered. I wasn't drafted. I'm not going to complain about something. I volunteered all along the way to keep going and then sit back and go, it messed me up. I did for a bit, but you know what? Now I'm just still taking action on what messed me up, but I walked away from that fight and I'm, that's what keeps me happy about it. You know? I want to shift gears to something um, to the flip side of the coin that we talked about with Tom and manhood and Jen femininity. What role does that play with the warfighter and the warfighter spouse? Ooh, femininity. Um, You know, I think it's kind of funny that you bring that up. In fact, two of the guys that I met from the unit had very feminine kind of qualities about them, which is not what you would expect from an operator. 
Such as um, what? What 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 would you define as that? Softer in the way they speak, um, not big muscly guys, you know, probably fit but not, you know, capable with their fitness, but not beefy at all at all. Um, you know, the guys wearing penny loafers kind of thing, you know, where you're just Nothing like against penny loafers. No, now we've got accountants, <laughs> accountants penny, penny loafers, loafers cat lovers, and, yeah. So like it's just the guy walking down the street, would you ever say that guy's in the unit or even in the military? No. You know, and and so that's why I've been surprised where he's like, oh, he was an operator. I'm like, like door kicker. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a badass. I'm like, what? Um, so even like that idea had changed for me that there is a feminine energy and a feminine presence. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's like the dirty word of like, I can't have any of those qualities. Um, I think empath and compassion are typically given a more feminine energy to them. But, you know, as Tom said, you have to kind of dehumanize the enemy. Um, You have to take empathy and compassion, whether it's even a conscious choice. People I know have asked Tom before, like, when did you choose not to be empathetic or compassionate anymore? And I said, you know, that's, that was never a decision of Tom's where one day he woke up and said, like, I'm just going to hate all people, (laughs) you know, like that, that was um, a trauma and fear response. Um, to do the job he had to do, and then also start creating this story about himself that really wasn't true either. When I met him, a lot of this bravado and a lot of this, you know, like I talked about, he had this charismatic personality, but I could kind of see through the shit too. I'm like, "Mm, a lot of this is armor. A lot of this is posturing. Um, I wouldn't have called you insecure then, but there was a lot of insecurities. Um, a lot of us are. The guys will hate me. They don't want to admit it. No, I'm not. That's just Tom. But bullshit. I talked to you on the phone, guys. It's a version of a man cold. You know, when men <laughs> yeah. get a cold, like, and women still yeah. take the kids to school and whatever they do, men are like, and they cover up with a blanket for three days. I see a lot of the higher up. A lot of the, not higher up, the long-term warriors, the door kickers, SF guys, whatever, rangers, more sensitive. Very sensitive. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's to shame or disrespect or, you know, but it's a sensitivity that comes out and and that's where the lash outs come. You know, the kids didn't put the dishes away or the kids said something smart or the wife just made a joke and and you're not in the mood and it's, it's it's that disrespect, uh, sensitivity Yeah, I think think a lot of the that kind of feminine energy of empathic or compassion could definitely play a larger role um, in the community, even just looking out for each other, even just having more um, curiosity with each other versus judgment. So that's a really hard group. I mean, you guys are really, really tough on each other. There's it's very hard to get into, very easy to get kicked out of. Yeah. Tough to stay. Yeah. Um, it's every day is a struggle. Uh, like I see where that insecurity comes from. You're, you're, you know, is my card green today. Is it yeah. 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 Is it going to go green right. today? Every, right. everybody talks about not even it. every day, every moment, every moment you walk out the bay into the hallway, into the Gosh. mess hall, into the gym, you know, it's, it's like, nuts. damn, am I fired between the, you know, my bay and the gym, but empathy and compassion in the workplace, I think helps guys understand what's happening and what's happening maybe at home. We would hear so often, you know, Tom was like, I didn't know that guy's wife had cancer. Like, I didn't even know. Yeah. Like, if I would have known, maybe I wouldn't have given him so much shit. He was mm. never at work. Like, I didn't know why he wasn't at work and why he was never coming into work. But to compartmentalize and say what's happening outside of work doesn't matter isn't really true either. And that's a big example of um, being more curious with a coworker. But the empathy and compassion 
uh, for each other even isn't there as much as I think could be there. I, I feel like that's a tr- an achievable trait for yes. service members, curiosity, being more curious. I feel like, um, and I know there's that, you know, SF trope of never say that you don't know, you know, and, and, and kind of that sense of, yeah, the, you know, the first, you know, certain sense of the first time I did this or whatever, but curiosity, you know, is, 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 is so achievable. And I actually wanted to ask, um, I know we're, you guys are super generous with your time and I promise I'm not going to hijack your entire day. So I'll, I'll start working, working towards a conclusion with this, but, um, one of the many things that interests me about this is the difference that you guys see between like your average tier two personality versus your tier one personality versus like the other day I saw the news article about guys working for um, special mission units that are intelligence based and the raft of the raft of suicides that have gone on there and uh, undiagnosed TBIs and all that that have kind of backfired. Do you see that there are different, um, again, it's a generalization, but can you see different uh, problem sets for each of those communities or does it all kind of always come back to the same general traits, no matter what community you're dealing with? Both. <laughs> kind of, there's this they, like overarching theme that's they definitely universal. back into the same, but you know, it starts here and then will come out, but it always seems to come mm. right back to the family, you know, the empathy, compassion and understanding and awareness. Starting yeah. with awareness. So I think there's a little bit of different problem sets depending on even every time we'll go, we'll ask either the, the chaplain or the command team that's bringing us like, what is your unique issue that your group is facing right now? And, you know, most often it's we've lost people will bring us because we've lost a couple guys. This last rotation, it's getting tough or our divorce rate is increasing. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had a couple suicides, things like that. But I think there's um, definitely a universal issues that are happening, no matter if you're Marine or, you know, your Air Force or your Army. There's just certain things that war is going to bring home. Tom, I just want, I want to make sure we cover this, but since transcendental meditation was dropped, can you just talk about the impact that's had for you and what, what that means and um, what people should know about that practice? Yeah, transcendental meditation was one of the first, second, really the thing I did. The first thing I did was therapy with an anger management counselor um, led into Jen finding transcendental meditation. I think it was too soon for me because it was, it's more of a, in my opinion at the time, Oh, that's woo woo. And I was like, I'll do that. But inside I'm going, whatever, you know, I didn't believe in it. Um, but I did it. And the first time he, he talked to me and, and put me under, I like, Oh, I was like, Whoa, what was that? Where'd we go? How long has it been? You know, I had no idea. I was like, I didn't even think this was possible. And I started feeling a lot better. It was it was one of those things that we led us to talking about now, the order in which you seek your healing, you know, mm. needs to make sense. If if I was an alcoholic and I couldn't do anything other than drink, then I probably need to start with alcohol, which means I'm not all better if I stop drinking now. Now I need to work on the problems with that alcohol in the way. I think I did transcendental meditation with too many problems in the way, and, mm. and my mental capacity was not yet ready to receive fully what I was doing. Um, but I'm glad I did it and it led me down a path of other things. And I know we're going to get back into it and we, we do it every now and then, but more of a habit because it really helps center. It really helps bring you down to a place of, of, of that pause I needed before I acted because I could, I could be angry for two days. I could hold on to something forever because I won't let go of it till it's finished, you know, and it's really 
taught me to, um, again, center myself and not focus outward on how am I going to be right on that last issue, whatever it was that I'm fighting on, you know, it's just more of a, everything's fine, you know, um, just, it works with the whole nervous system. I think that's what, when I started doing the research and, you know, there's, a um, their website's just tm.org and there's, they really started heavy with the law enforcement and firefighter community. That's kind of where it took off. And then they started Mm. implementing that at different, um, I, I think NYPD was maybe one of the first um, that they really started making it part of their essential training because it shuts down the nervous system and it really biologically resets your stress meter. So you can imagine cops kind of need to do that every night and every morning, but so do our, so do all of us, frankly. And is that I what they did in prisons too? In prisons um, around with, the world, inmates and around the world, a less return to prison rate. In fact, our, our, the guy oh. who taught us TM um, worked with the Maharishi and he was imprisoned in Africa when he was training over there, maybe back in the seventies. And so he was arrested, put in jail, and he started teaching all the guards um, TM. And he was there for like, I think three, three, four weeks, something like that. And by the end, all the guards every morning would get together and do transcendental meditation together in the morning and afternoons with Michael Blitz leading it. Um, and, you know, had profound changes just within that own one little prison in, in Africa. So, wow. Were they spaced amazing. out and then he could, he could reach in and grab the keys off their yeah, exactly. and the door and all that. They, they ended yeah. up feeding them better, I think. Um, but yeah, you're in so prison for this, but we like it. But I, <laughs> yeah, right. but it might keep you in prison longer. Wouldn't it? Yeah. It was like, Hey, I yeah. never worked. Yeah. 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 Um, listen, in conclusion, let me, let me ask one very practical thing just to wrap this up. Um, and again, thank you guys for being so generous with this. I, I seriously could go another three hours, so I'm, I'm cutting myself off. Um, for those listening, what's one thing that they can do today? What's what's one thing that just is a, a good common sense practice, whether it's a change in attitude, an actual tangible thing they do, or just um, a, a, a thought experiment that they can play with yeah. and, and change their minds? I've got one. I would do the can't versus won't. That's yeah. pretty... That's pretty eye-opening. The longer you can do it, the better it works. Um, okay. What is so that? So if you do it for today, great. If you do it for a week, you will have so much awareness because really what you want to do is tune into what's working in your life and what's not, and then your responsibility in that like or not like part. So for instance, um, I can't take my wife out for a date this week because I won't take her out. I can't get on the floor and play with my kids because I won't get on the floor and play with my kids. So you start to see your responsibility and your role pretty quickly when you take can't and you replace that with won't. Um, It seems really simple, but we'll have a lot of people with some pretty profound um, ways of seeing what is a priority in my life and and what's my role in where things aren't working. So that's a little like like thing you could do and it'll create some awareness and then hopefully you can get to work on some change. I'll mm-hmm. pass that to some of my friends. I, I don't need yeah. that. That's I'm way past that. For but that's yeah, a very yeah, good yeah. one. For <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah. One thing I've done, um, and I, I probably stole it from AA or a bunch of other yeah. people, but I, I usually wake up in a bad mood. I'm I'm in pain. I wake up uh, and I even if I'm having a day off and it's a great day, I wake up I'm like, well, that's gonna happen today before it's good. Just because of the state I'm in as I wake up and I'm in pain. Is I've I've as I wake up and if that enters my head, I start thinking of everything good in my life, right? I start 
thinking of I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thank you know, not the stupid, I'm thankful I'm alive, blah, blah, blah. I, I I really lay there and I think of things that you know, gratitude that I'm happy for. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. changed how I've started my day. You know, I could start my day in a in a half bad mood. Now I'm just waiting on something bad to happen to really set me off, you know, versus starting off in a good mood. Something might take me down a little bit from there, might take me down, but I don't launch into something. It's really helped me, um, number one, be thankful for the things I have in my life and considerate of it. And two, get out of that bad mood in the morning, you know, breaking a habit that is not good. So you have to be aware of that habit and then work on changing it. And so I try to do that every morning when I wake up, I'm like, ah, what's going on today? Yeah, my back. And then up, I think, nope, nope. You know what? I'm glad that my heat's still on or my lights are on or whatever it is. I, I go down a list of things that I'm happy for. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Do you think there's been any holistic benefit of that mental shift to you physically? Do you feel less in pain or has that not played a role at all? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When I get in that role of I'm always in pain, I get in more pain. You know, I need to work out and then I'll, it's kind of like working out will will bring me in pain, but doing nothing is worse pain. So, you know, let's get over that. So, yeah, I think it's brought me out a lot of of pain because I get up sooner. I move quicker. I don't lay there and uh, it creates more pain, really, just because of the fear of moving. Um, And then the attitude of the day is better. And I think I think just a generalized upbeat, you know of my, of my personality has been a great increase, um, for me to not be so ready to jump on something. Yeah. You know, I'm not perfect. Obviously I still look for the shit that I'm mad about. Things still upset me and I bring them up. I don't hold on to them. I don't belabor them over and over again as much as I can, you know? Um, and I don't hold on to it all day long or two days or three days and, and then wait to throw something else on top of it to really blow up about. Yeah. Jen, do you know, do you know, Tom, at this point, are there any secrets left? Are there any deep conversations about, Hey, you got to tell me about this. Cause you're still doing this. Or at this point, is it like, nah, nah, I've, I've read, I've read you. I got you. I feel like I got you, but <laughs> you know, we, we go on dates all the time, probably a couple a week, really. We do date night. And just last night I was asking some kind of questions about past and growing up and what did you think about this? And so we're always kind of we're always kind of dating and there's and still surprises and keep stuff, that yeah. info going. But yeah, I think, I think you're always going to surprise me. You've always got something up your sleeve. She knows all my dirt. Now we're, now we're, now we're digging <laughs> in all true. the good stuff. <laughs> She's got the dossier just stuff. building there. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Guys, this has been a blast. I, I I'm sure many of my friends will, will love it. Uh, it hasn't meant anything to me personally, but, but to those that yeah. I know, you know, it'll have a huge impact. Um, Really, I enjoyed the hell out of this. Um, come back and talk to us again, will you? I'd love, love to. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so much more. I'd love to ask you guys. Um, let's do it again. We'll talk yeah. to you down yeah. the road for sure. Thanks for having us. That was Tom and Jen Satterley's profile in Havoc. What a great time! I can't wait to get them back on. The list of questions that I have that we did not get to is long indeed. Um, everything you want to know about what Tom and Jen are up to. Go to allsecurefoundation.org. That's all one word, allsecurefoundation.org. That's a pretty good um, catch-all site for everything that they're up to, uh, as well as having links to social media and all that. But we'll have everything in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, scroll down, and you will be able to access 
uh, their books with the Amazon links and their social media and all the rest of that. I want to thank uh, Second Mission Foundation for sponsoring this episode. I'd also like to thank our other sponsor, the Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and to celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Of course, full disclosure, that is my nonprofit. Veterans Repertory Theater also produces the Savage Wonder podcast and the Savage Wonder literary blog and the Savage Wonder Festival coming to Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center on Memorial Day weekend 2022 on the Sunday on uh, May 29th. It is an all-day festival featuring so many talented veteran artists. All the acts will be veteran artists. There will be music. There will be poets. There will be dance with Exit 12 Dance Company and Roman Baca. Um, bands like Silence and Light, Doc Oliver. Uh, it The list goes on and on. Um, great uh, veteran writers, authors. We'll have book talks. Uh, it's going to be a blast. Uh, I'm recording this so far in advance that there are a lot of things still up in the air about some of the other features that we may add on, but it is not one to miss. It is even worth coming up to the Hudson Valley in New York to visit. And certainly if you're anywhere within driving distance, uh, it is, will be well worth your time. It, the admission will be free. It'll be pay what you can. And there will be many opportunities to purchase and support our sponsors and um, you know, buy books, buy art. We'll have art showings out there from a lot of talented veteran artists. It's going to be a very, very cool event. So do not miss the Savage Wonder Festival coming up on Memorial Day weekend on May 29th, the day before Memorial Day at Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center in Chester, New York. Anything you want to know about that, just go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. As of right now, I don't have the website set up. By the time you're hearing this episode, a dedicated website to Savage Wonder Festival may be up, in which case uh, I will feel a little negligent, but not too negligent. Just go to vetrep.org, and you will be able to access the Savage Wonder Festival through that site uh, if it exists by the time you're listening to this. All right. For this episode, if there's anything else that, uh, you know, any alibis for anything I misstated, anything else that you guys need to know, go check out the show notes, check out the show alibis if there are any. Um, And of course, as I always say, if you're listening to this on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. We would also love your feedback. So say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks, it's all welcome. But if you could just attach five stars to whatever you're saying, if you're on iTunes, that would be great. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Tom and Jen Satterley. We'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.